Hier komen wij in vreemd. Listen to Red Flag Radio, we're recording the show on Indigenous land. Land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that was never given away, that was stolen, and that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, Red Flag Radio is a socialist podcast. My name's Rose Ward, I host the podcast. Um, and I was just thinking, I was teaching today and I did an acknowledgement of country and I asked the students who have teaching students whether they knew what seeded meant and they were mm. like oh no I've never thought about that and what that actually means mm. and I just thought of that as I was doing at the acknowledgement there at the beginning um, so the land has not been seeded it was not given to anyone who is here um, who's not indigenous and here we are nonetheless um, this episode is a celebration of International Working Women's Day and as such I've got two fantastic women joining me on the podcast my comrades and friends, uh, Liz Walsh and Louisa Bassini. Thank you very much for being Hi, here. Hi. Welcome. Um, we've got some people who listen to the show who rate the show on their um, different podcast platforms. I'm not sure if you have. I know you haven't, Liz. But um, <laughs> if you do, if you I are will. listening on iTunes or somewhere that you can give a star review or whatever, it does help um, people uh, find their way to the show. And also... Um, Sharing it around if you're enjoying what you're hearing is useful too. And there's plenty of platforms for um, for that to happen. And also thanks to our Patreons at patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast for um, donating some cash to help us keep the show going. Liam Ward's also in the chair producing the show. Hi. Hi, Liam. Uh, and all right, let's get into it. International Women's Day, celebrated every year now, and it's become more and more of a thing in a sort of mainstream society, if we can use that term. But it was originally known as International Working Women's Day, and it should be known as that, I think. We'll, we'll talk about that. It's a bit more long-winded, but we'll get there. International Working Women's Day. Um, and it was established um, more than 100 years ago, 110 years ago in Germany, as part of the socialist movement and inspired by socialist women activists um, who had been holding demonstrations and so on, and was taken up after Clara Zetkin proposed the establishment of a regular International Working Women's Day at a conference in Copenhagen in 1910. And then in Russia, obviously, there was a, a growing movement of socialists, and perhaps most famously when we get to 1917 in Russia, which we celebrate um, as the Russian Revolution, as revolutionary socialists, as a very important year. Um, it was actually on International Working Women's Day that um, the February Revolution uh, kicked off. So let's start there, I reckon, Liz. Um, what was so important historically about International Working Women's Day in Russia in 1917? Well, uh, as you said, the uh, International Working Women's Day protest in Russia in 1917 really kick-started the, the revolution. So the mass uprising of working-class people, soldiers um, of the oppressed against the Tsarist regime, which had been in power for three centuries. So on uh, International Women's Day, we had textile women workers deciding to go out on strike, to down their tools and to leave their mills. 
Uh, and it wasn't just some uncontrolled outburst of anger. It was something that was planned, that was organised, that had to be argued for. Uh, women had been a growing part of the workforce in Russia. They made up something like half of the workforce because millions of men had been sent to fight and die uh, in the First World War. And so women were increasingly a part of the class struggle. They'd been a part of food riots. They'd been a part of the protests on Bloody Sunday and protests outside of factories that had been shut down by their bosses to break uh, workers' power. And so when women decided to go out, they went to the socialist left to say, will you support us? They went to the Bolsheviks and asked for support. They went to soldiers and said, uh, you know, will you fire on us if we go out and march? Um, and they were really determined to go out on this day to really not just talk about their own grievances, but to begin a real challenge against the whole of, uh, you know, the, the government. And in terms of what happened on this day, these textile women workers were incredible. Like the, the images that are, are, um, are drawn by the accounts of journalists and participants are truly in inspiring. So women workers went um, in large groups from factory to factory. It was actually a tradition in Russia to do this. And women also did it, calling on other workers in other factories to come out on strike, to down their tools as well, to join them. They threw snowballs through factory windows and they picked up sticks and rocks and whatever they could to beseech you know, their fellow comrades to come and join them. And they particularly went to uh, male workers in uh, the metal factories because they were known as some of the most militant and organised sections of the working class. Uh, and they joined them. Uh, and I think that this, uh, this movement shows how when women fight that it's important to try and draw in broader layers of the working class, not just fight alone, to fight isolated, that you need wider layers of support and that it's possible to win that support, that working class men could see that their interests were bound up in the fight uh, of women around food shortages, democratic rights and ultimately against the war and against the czarist regime. Mm. And we talk about it quite a bit, sort of describing the scenes of that um, February revolution in the mm. beginning and I know people like to say the thing about throwing snowballs through the window. <laughs> it makes it sound a bit sort of um, infantile or something. I don't know. But like it's actually it's such a serious um, occasion where they've seen the repression of the Tsarist regime. They know the dangers. You know, these are Bolshevik women who've had to organize underground, who've been through the years of repression where – a lot of women actually played a massive role in doing things like smuggling illegal newspapers into Russia mm -hmm. under their skirts was one of the things because mm -hmm. you could fit um, heaps of shit under there uh, and weapons and all of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. that was going on. So this was really like a sort of um, taking, <coughs> risking your life, throwing these, you know, throwing snowballs through a window and trying to convince men mm. uh, in their workplaces to come out and join them. And without that happening on that day, on Working Women's International Working Women's Day, I mean that changes the whole course of history. So it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty remarkable event and something worth people reading a bit more about. And there's plenty of, um, as you said, of mm -hmm. accounts of that time. Um, so we come across a long way from Russia to Australia, and some of the history of International Working Women's Day here. Um, it was a while after 1917, but you know there were. Uh, communists in Australia, there were people who celebrated the Russian Revolution in Australia, obviously, as as socialists and debates and things that went on. But the first sort of International Working Women's Days um, that were kind of bigger events in Australia uh, happened in the late 20s and early 30s at the beginning of the Depression. There was a march in 1931 
down to the banks of the Yarra River, which was a traditional thing for marchers to do. I think it would be a nice thing to resurrect. <laughs> but, um, uh, that, so those things were happening. Um, and then I guess we're going to just skip forward a bit um, to the 1970s, which is sort of traditionally known as the period of women's liberation internationally from the late 60s into the early 70s, where um, what's now recognised as a, as a movement for women's liberation began to take off. And um, the big march that happened in Melbourne, where we were recording this um, episode, happened in 1972 and 3,000 people. And I think in, in the 1970s, um, in the early 1970s, I mean, we think of big marches now and women being activists and all of that as a very normal, mm. everyday thing to happen. But in 1972, for 3,000 people to march through Melbourne calling out sexism, talking about women, uh, women's rights and all of that was a pretty big deal. And mm-hmm. there was a particular group of people that I was reading about lo- <laughs> looking at this who were on bikes who ha- had, uh, you know, like the traditional Akubra hats or whatever, this, mm-hmm. this Aussie thing with the corks hanging from the brim. Instead of corks, they had um, tampons hanging <laughs> from their hat brims. They called themselves the menstrual cycles. Very provocative. I thought this is excellent. I, I might have been part of that group. If I was, no, I'd be with the socialists, but um, <laughs> but yeah, that sounds pretty good. So counterpose. Uh, yeah, not necessarily. Socialists can do fun, cool things too. Um, I'm more into the idea of carrying weapons and papers <laughs> under a skirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I need well, a maybe skirt, a tampon though. could be a weapon used uh, in the right way. Um, Louisa, let's talk about women's liberation then in Australia <clears throat> in the seventies. Where did it kind of come from? Like, what was the context for it, and what what kind of things yeah. did women's liberation achieve or seek to achieve? Yeah, well, I mean, things really picked up around the world, I guess, in the late 60s and early 70s. It was a period of um, heightened class struggle uh, globally and in Australia, Um, and it was defined by protest movements against the Vietnam War, for civil rights in the US and here, for women's and gay rights, Um, and not just protest movements. Importantly, this was backed up by an industrial militancy that could actually follow through and force some real changes. Um, So the generalised class combativity at the time really set the agenda and um, that's the context for the women's liberation movement. And I think we'd have to say that um, the fight for equal pay, which was um, part of that, was and still is one of the most significant wins of the women's liberation movement. So by the 1970s in Australia, a third of workers were female um, and still they were legally allowed to be paid less than their male counterparts for the same job, um, which is kind of stunning to think of now, even though we're still not paid the same as as men, um, for that to be allowed in law is kind of stunning. Um, And unionists um, took that up, male and female unionists took strike action in a range of industries in the metal, textile, railways um, and meat workers amongst other unions. Um, with this culminating in a national strike by insurance clerical workers. Um, and this um, brought the the whole campaign for equal pay into, um, it was enshrined in law by 1974, um, even though, like I said, the, 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 in real terms it's yet to be won. I mean, I work in the community sector and mm-hmm. um, we're paid substantially less than, than people doing similar work in the mm-hmm. public sector, for instance, where it's um, more male-dominated. Um, 
So there's equal pay, but there's much more to what um, the legacy of women's liberation as well. It's a time that was characterised by an explosion of female sexual freedom. Um, there was a general challenge to conservative norms and stereotypes, and that's reflected in some of the gains around, for instance, the establishment of no-fault divorce uh, and access to abortion. Again, abortion rights, you know, it's a battle that we haven't fully won, mm. but, um, you know, that, that you couldn't have have access to abortion in any way back then was kind of um, crazy to think of. So there's a whole heap of ways in which we're indebted to that movement, um, even though we've still got a long way to go. Yeah. And it just drew attention to a whole lot of different issues that I think hadn't been highlighted, not just um, sort of attitudinal, although a lot of it was to do with that. It was kind of like drawing attention to structural oppression of women and equal pay being kind of the biggest manifestation of that. And Louisa, you were involved mm. in a more recent campaign mm. um, for equal pay with the Australian Services Union a couple of years ago yeah. that was about trying to say, well, that you know, our employers are breaking the law. We're supposed to have equal pay and we still don't. And that was quite a militant campaign in comparison to other recent, more yeah. recent. It was less um, of a tradition, social work. So it was really impressive to see yeah. thousands of women. I think you were delegate of the year, weren't you, Louisa? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it brought, I think, into the public mind that we still haven't won equal pay, uh, which is really important. Mm. But like what happened back then, you know, employers just screw down on um, the way they can manipulate things like um, by just um, classi underclassifying mm. you essentially so that they can pay you less. Um, and, there's and all different strategies that they use, you know, and if we don't have a kind of um, the militancy that we had back then to really follow through, then as we've seen with, with that campaign, it hasn't resulted in real terms of um, any kind of parity with the public service for the equal um, similar work. And wasn't it the case that a lot of the um, the not for profits actually pocketed some of the the money that um, governments were giving um, yeah. the industry? Yeah. yeah, so it didn't flow on to the workers. And it was also a time when Julia Gillard was in power, and it's uh, she actually played a pretty negative role in that whole campaign, resisting mm. the kind of equal pay ruling. Uh, and it really highlighted, I think, for uh, for many of us, for socialists, for women workers, that just seeing more women in positions of power doesn't mean that our lives and conditions are going to get any better. In fact, there's a conflict mm. and we have to fight those women in the halls of power as well. Mm. But the, I mean, the other thing it did, and I know it wasn't like this crushing victory and there's still things to be won, but I think what that campaign did was actually bring quite a lot of young women into the union yeah. movement or at least move them from just being a paper kind of union member to thinking actually being a union member means more than just um, mm. paying your dues and signing up. Um, the membership form and all of that. Mm. So that that there's a memory, there's a legacy. <coughs> excuse me, there's a legacy of that that still remains, even if the employers still think that they can get away with, um, yeah, fucking people over. Mm. Our comrades across the world. So let's fast forward again uh, to, I guess, I think it's been a turning point in kind of women's struggle and highlighting sexism in the last few years, which probably began around the time that Donald Trump was elected um, and seen um, – and people's kind of shock, I think, at Donald Trump being elected after all of mm. these revelations about his disgusting mm -hmm. sexist behaviour that he never denied, that there's recordings of him saying mm -hmm. disgusting sexist stuff, that he's this misogynist, that he has 
no shame about it. And he's running up against uh, a woman who, um, obviously, we're no fans of Hillary Clinton, but, you know, the way that he degraded her and all of that kind of stuff, really, obviously, and people thought there's no way (laughs) that this pig is going to become the next president of the United States, and then he did. Mm. And one of the first people to sort of organise protests against him was this big women's march that happened, Mm. I think. uh, In January. Yeah, so... um, so let's talk about that. Do you, what What do you think is successful? What do you think has been significant um, about that kind of turn towards women's organising or mm. that kind of struggle? Well, uh, firstly, I think that um, Donald Trump being in power and then also the, all the revelations that came out with the Me Too movement, uh, that it's really exposed how the institutions of power, whether it be you know, the courts or uh, the media, politicians or corporations, all of the elite uh, have a culture of deep misogyny and sexism that uh, it's not the case that actually in, you know, positions of of power of the elite that they're somehow enlightened. Actually, this is where some of the worst uh, misogynists reside and, and are protected. So I think that's really been a revelation for people, just that ruling class culture of, of sexism. Um, and in terms of Trump, yeah, it's um, obviously been no surprise that his whole pers- period of, in power has been one of attacks on working class people and in particular on uh, women and on minorities. Um, as you said, yeah, there was that tape that um, had him bragging about sexually assaulting uh, women. Uh, and, yeah, I think that for a lot of people it was quite shocking that someone like him could win the election, but I do think it's important that we... Uh, remember that Hillary Clinton couldn't inspire any working class support because really she was just this uh, neoliberal, uh, pro-ruling class um, hawk who who had presided over the growing inequality in American society and uh, also, you know, sat on various corporate boards like Walmart, which uh, enforces incredibly low wages for working class women who are their main employees. in retail. Mm. So, yeah, no surprise that Trump won uh, against Hillary Clinton in some ways. But, yeah, so Trump in power has led to a whole lot of attacks and uh, that's been, you know, <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh, that um, um, anti-abortionist being nominated for the Supreme Court. We're seeing cuts to uh, to reproductive services, attacks on, on workplace protections against sexual harassment, you name it. There's also been, you know, the Conservatives have been spurred on by Trump in power uh, to wind back women's rights to control our body and uh, in some states actually ban abortion outright. Uh, so, yeah, so one of the the impressive things initially in terms of Trump's presidency was the response by women uh, to Trump being in power, that in January 2017, immediately after his inauguration, he had millions of women on the streets of the US uh, to protest against this bigot-in-chief um, and that showed the real potential for there to be resistance under Trump. We also saw, saw a few months later uh, the immigrant rights movement as well when there was the travel ban uh, where thousands of people rushed to the airports to occupy them. Real potential for a fight back against Trump. But um, I think the the opportunities have really been squandered uh, to build an ongoing movement against Trump. Today there isn't the same kind of mass mobilisations on the streets and haven't been for many years now. You know, Trump has been more and more no- normalised and I think that we have to sheet some of the home blame, uh, the blame home to, <laughs> you know what I mean, uh, to the Democrats uh, who 
um, really dominated the mobilising around the women's movement, the NGOs that are aligned to the Democrats, and they very much uh, derailed the movement into to vote Democrat campaigns that, you know, we need to control the House and that's the most important thing and also changed the whole political conversation in the US from focusing on issues like sexism or Trump's anti-immigrant policies, his pro-corporate policies with all the tax cuts and so on, to just questions of like, is Trump a, a Russian spy and is he disrespecting the CIA? Um, you know, hashtag resistance became, you know, really, really, um, you know, it, no real resistance to Trump. So I think that um, there was potential, but mm. that was sort of wound down. And there has been attempts by a lot of uh, women uh, on the left to try and revive that, uh, and in particular around International Women's Day, March 8, to make it more of a day of sort of anti-capitalist women organising, to, to have a women's strike in particular. Uh, in the US, most of those protests uh, have been relatively small, you know, thousands perhaps, but it's been more successful uh, internationally, particularly in Spanish-speaking countries. We've seen millions of women on the streets on March 8th in Spain, in Argentina, in Chile, and so on. Um, and I think, yeah, that's been something of an, an inspiration for a lot of women around the world to see how they've, you know, mobilised, how they've brought up issues about controlling our bodies, you know, rejecting the sexual objectification of women, um, mm. sexual violence, and so on. I think it's quite a different dynamic in um, in those Latin American countries because it is so much more of a working class movement. Mm. Whereas in the US, I think one of the things that has been, well, that was initially disarming, I think, about Trump was that people um, tried to talk down his, that he wasn't a social conservative. And actually in the run up to the election, he was all pro-gay rights. Like, uh, you know, mm. I, I don't really have a position on abortion and all of that. And people said, oh, don't worry. He's just like a business kind of guy. And he doesn't care about these social questions. And then, as soon as he's in and and people know that, you know, uh, you can get Trump to do things for them, the social <laughs> conservatives and the Christian lobbies and all of those types of people actually saw this opportunity when others had not really kind of seen it coming to push through all of this anti-abortion stuff and mm. anti-trans um, rights, etc. So, um, and then the other thing you've got in American politics is this sort of two-year national election cycle. So it's very easy to switch immediately into, even though it's 2016, yeah. there's another election in 2018, yeah. then there's one in 2020, then there'll be another one in 2022. So you're never very far away from saying, well, the, the, thing, the way we can stop this is elect some Democrats. Oh, and guess what? In two years' time, elect some more Democrats. And guess what? In two years' time, like some more, you know, and so the women's, uh, the women's movement that did show so much promise and potential and anger and um, diversity and all of those kind of things was yeah very quickly transformed, and it was a cross-class kind of women's movement. I think in a lot of ways that in Latin America, if you look at the Argentinian situation or even in the Spanish women's strikes, like it's connected to something in society that is much more rooted in the working class, working class neighbourhoods and suburbs and all of those kind of things. So it'd be really interesting to um, hear from one of the leaders of the campaign in Argentina, which looks like it's just on the brink of victory. Maybe they're timing it with International <laughs> Women's Day to announce that they are going to uh, make abortion legal for the very first time anywhere in Latin America, right? No, oh, one of the largest Latin American One countries. of the largest. It's, it's Latin legal America. in Uruguay and a few other places. Oh, yeah, okay, mm. yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Uh, so Andrea Lanzet is coming to Marxism from the 
um, Argentinian left from a Trotskyist organization there, and she was one of the people um, who, who's been leading that struggle. It's quite amazing. So um, looking so forward to hearing from her. Mm. If you haven't got your Marxism ticket yet, <laughs> uh, mm. still plenty of time, but do it now. One of the things I did want to say was that uh, the whole w- winding back of women's rights in the US, the, the offensive by the conservatives really, I think, emphasizes for uh, anyone that's for fighting for women's liberation, that all the gains that we've we've made in the seventies, uh, all the the organising and fighting that we've we've done to establish legal equality, that all of this can be up for grabs, that it can be wound back, it can be torn down uh, when our side mm. becomes more disorganised and weaker, and when the right is on the offensive, it really makes the case, I think, for overthrowing the whole system. Yeah. Mm. The other funny thing, well, not funny, but like. In America, the other thing that people talk about is the Supreme Court mm. as like this will be the thing. So we just need to not only elect the right president, but then when the right president is there and someone in the Supreme Court dies, then we'll have our chance to replace that person with a slightly better version yeah, of a judge. Yeah, that's a that's people who've got time to wait. Um, there's a lot of people around the world that don't have time to wait right now, and they're showing it on the streets. I mean. 2019 and into 2020, we've seen these amazing images of um, and videos and speeches and um, yeah, shared these global revolts as much as possible. And we should talk about them a lot with each other because it's mm-hmm. what we look to as socialists as how you change the world. And one of the um, striking things has been the presence of women in these global. Struggles. So, Louisa, do you want to talk a bit more about what's been happening there? Yeah, for once it was a pleasure to actually scroll through Facebook, wasn't it? Like for a few <laughs> months there, like my feed was just full of the most incredible images, um, those Chilean um, young high school student women storming that train station and just pushing their way right past the fucking cops who could do <laughs> yeah, nothing right, to stop them. Away. Yeah, yeah. I have to say I watched that quite a few times. <laughs> yeah, and I mean one of the most striking things about the movements that um, have happened in the last year in Lebanon, Chile, Hong Kong, various places, is that it's been women and particularly young women um, at the forefront taking centre stage in essentially pitched battles against the state, which has been a total thrill to see, I reckon. Um. Like there's lots to hate about the system, but I reckon one of the reasons why women are at the forefront is because we usually have a whole lot of other reasons. Um, we're often carrying a double burden of exploitation at work where we're still paid less than men, as I've mentioned. Mm. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. <laughs> it seems to come up a bit. Um, and then we're also disproportionately still undertaking um, domestic labour as well. I think it's also the case that when money's tight, it's often women who are trying to make ends meet to care for kids or um, to look after their household. Um, And so they can be the ones that really feel that strain. And then there's all the other extra layers of shit that come from um, stereotypes and gender roles, gendered violence and the sexist judgment um, that we face every day that can can make particularly young women really ready to explode. And that's what we've seen. Mm. Um, And then, like, I also reckon that when you experience oppression and um, multiple layers of it sometimes, if you're Indigenous or you're working class and so on, you're just generally more attuned to the, suf- the suffering of others around you. Um, you've got less to lose in this system and more to fight for. And that contributes to a dynamic that means that um, women and other minorities are really propelled to the forefront of s- social struggle when those eruptions happen. Yeah, it's that thing of like once you break, once you've sort of 
break out of it in one moment, then it's it's sort of like, oh, you don't want to go back. Mm. You know, and there's so many struggles. It doesn't have to be sort of of a revolutionary scale or even a mass upheaval, but even just um, strike movements or single strikes in workplaces can make women suddenly feel different about, hold on a second, now I felt a little bit of power and I, I can see the potential to change things and now I'm not going to go back. And, you know, I remember even all the stuff about the miners' strike in Britain that was kind of drummed into me in, in, from the 1980s, but um, even more recent strikes in, in Britain, but also in Australia and so on. And, I mean, reading even about the uh, women in India, mm-hmm. particularly resisting the um, Islamophobic oppression that's happening at the moment with their bodies, with their lives, like with their children now on the streets as well, quite often, who've mm. been interviewed and said, no, nah, I'm not, you know, <laughs> like I was happy to, you know, play my role and do what I was meant to do. But mm. now things, I, have changed. things have changed and I, I, there's no way I'm going back. And yes, my husband is bloody making the dinner and doing all <laughs> of that stuff that, mm. and I'm not going back to it because this is not just about me. This is about you know, our whole society and our whole lives and there's not, you know, why would you not um, keep fighting? And I think that's kind of repeated and echoed all around the world and there's some pretty amazing Mm. examples of that, like Sudan, Mm. famously. Yeah, in Sudan we've seen uh, women really take a leading role in that struggle against the uh, dictatorship of Omar Bashir. Uh, Actually, I think there was reports that women made – over 50% of the protesters in Sudan. And mm. this is in a country where uh, women uh, were in a particularly uh, uh, second-class status. And so to see yeah, so many women coming to the forefront, finding their voice is truly inspiring. And one of the, the most viral images actually that came out of Sudan was of um, a student woman protester who was standing aloft a, a car and uh, she was leading the whole of the demonstration in, in, in chants and uh, chants for revolution, for Thawra, which is the Arabic word for revolution. Her name was Allah uh, Salah. And, yeah, this woman dressed in, in white robes, sort of the traditional white robes, um, uh, showing their support for the revolution and also the fight for women's rights. Um, but we've also seen women lead in, in Iraq as well. A few weeks ago there were big protests in Baghdad and cities across Iraq about um, asserting the central role of women in that uprising as well around issues of inequality and corruption and fighting for, you know, a genuine democratic say in their country. Um, in fact, their protests, interestingly, were ringed by, uh, by men who provided kind of a security cordon. Um, and those uh, revolutionary men uh, also were showing their solidarity with the women's struggle. And, um, and that was necessary because in all of these massive upheavals, women have been targeted by state forces. Mm. Uh, that the state understands that in order to weaken uh, and repress the movement, they have to particularly target women. And uh, they've, you know, uh, shot tear gas at them, rubber bullets, live ammunition, in detention. They've uh, bashed uh, and raped women. Uh, and so one of the, the, the things that have come out of the, the rebellions has been a real um, protest at state sexual violence against women. And people might have, have uh, seen the... The, uh, the, the dance or the kind of the performance that a feminist collective in Chile uh, developed that sort of talked about how it's the state, it's the police, it's the courts, it's the political elite that are to blame for this sexual violence. They're complicit. Um, and uh, 
I think, yeah, one of the things about the, the movements, why it's so important is because it shows how um, in struggle women really uh, can challenge the internalised sexism as well. The sort of mm. degrading stereotypes aren't just about how it makes it harder for women to see in um, for men to see in women equal partners in the struggle, but also makes it harder for women to feel the confidence to take up space, to speak out, to assert themselves. But in the process of fighting back, how quickly, you know, women can really challenge that internalised sexism. Yeah, it's really underscores why these uprisings show a way forward for challenging women's oppression. Yeah, and that um, internationalism of those struggles as mm. well, I think, is that song um, from Chile or the, the chant and the dance moves that go with it, whatever, and it's just been copied and it's... Um, in country after country. Country after country. We'll and be in Melbourne. It's going to be attempted in <laughs> Melbourne. But, um, we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, so those, those things spread as well. And I think, um, you know, that sense of solidarity occurs across the working class but across women in the working class as well. I mean, as Marxists, I think one of the stereotypes that's supplied uh, about us is that we do acknowledge oppression of other forms. We acknowledge racism, sexism, homophobia or whatever, but we say when it comes down to it, the most important thing is is class. And so it's this idea of class reductionist um, sense of politics. So um, fighting for women's liberation is secondary for fighting around class issues. How would you respond to that criticism, Louisa? Well, I don't think that they're secondary at all. Um, what I would say is that women's issues are class issues, um, certainly the, the ones that have an impact on our lives. Um, the majority of union members in Australia are women now, and um, the issues I think that really affect us are that we need to be paid more so that we're not dependent on um, a male breadwinner wage in order to be able to afford housing in Melbourne, for instance. Um, we need shorter working hours so we can actually care for the children that are in our care. We need publicly funded childcare and healthcare. And these are all things that are actually working class demands um, and that can be won through that struggle as well. Um, you know, in fact, their own, we, our only chance of winning them is through um, the workplaces, I think, as we've seen historically. Um, of, co of course, we protest in the streets as well, but not with some delusional idea that the sisterhood will deliver. If we locate the basis of our oppression within the very structure of a system that some women benefit immensely from, then we can be sure of that. So I think Marxists can offer that political clarity. You know, we don't neglect social issues. We're often um, the people driving campaigns like the one for equal marriage rights, reproductive rights and so on. But we position that within an analysis of capitalism, the social conditions that underpin our oppression, and we allow that to inform our strategies about how to fight. Mm. So it's an analysis of the world um, uh, that thinks about power in particular, mm -hmm. which I think is so, it's like... It's, um, it's. I think it shows great disrespect, to, or that maybe is not the, quite the right word, but disregard for um, a genuine fight for oppression. And people don't use the word liberation very much anymore. But I think I still think it's a very important word. But we talk. We used to talk about we. I mean, the socialists and people have talked about women's liberation, gay liberation. We don't just say gay equality we say the freedom to have whatever sexuality that you want to have without being subject to any oppression for women to have complete complete freedom and liberation well why would you fight for that without thinking about questions of power or who's on our side and who's not on our side what stands in the way of actual 
women's liberation or liberation from all forms of gender depression. So class struggle for me is about um, locating the power that we have in the system that we understand and listen to our 101, uh, our beginner's guide to capitalism for more about that. But um, struggle is uh, part of um, fighting on a class basis, but that means fighting sexism. You can't fight sexism without fighting on a class basis and you can't fight on a class basis without fighting sexism. Those two things go together. Definitely. They definitely go together. The, I think the, it's really interesting. Some of the things Louisa was talking about earlier that the uh, heightened militancy of the sixties really was the terrain in which we saw the emergence of the women's liberation mm. movement and the gay liberation movement, that that rising sense of confidence, the rising combativity of working-class people really helped lay the basis for other oppressed sections to come forward with their own demands and to organise around their specific questions, but also to see that you know we, we can't just sort of fight separately, but we need to have a, a struggle against the whole system. I think, yeah, one of the things about class struggle that's so important to the fight for women's liberation is that that question of power. And uh, we know that the capitalist class have immense power. They control production, they control the state and all the bodies of coercion. Uh, but on our side, we have uh, the reality that we make everything. We do everything uh, that makes this, this society function. We make their profits. Uh, and so that whole question of Collectively organising in the workplace, uniting together, withdrawing our labour, shutting down our workplace and the economy, like that is incredibly powerful. Uh, and it's powerful not just because we can paralyse their economy and their profit-making system, but it's powerful because of the way it challenges uh, the participants to, to confront the bigoted attitudes, the backward attitudes that we've, uh, you know, accepted in, and the dominant ideas of capitalism that we've sort of taken for granted and, and in that process of struggling we it demands solidarity it demands finding a way to 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 unite together and um i think that's why you see metal workers and insurance workers and meat workers and so on being a real part of that equal pay fight back in um the 60s and 70s and earlier um but yeah, as I, I was saying earlier i think also the class struggle is important for not just um what it means for unity of working class people and uh, male workers, female workers, seeing that we have common interests. Um, but also because I think that whole thing of, you know, Marx talks about how revolution is necessary, not only because, you know, the ruling class can't be overthrown in any other way, you know, just going to vote them out um, or petition them out, we're going to have to overthrow them. But also because of it's the way we get rid of the muck of ages. And the muck of ages is not just the sexism that men accept, but it's also the sexism that women uh, internalise as well, and you can see that whole process of struggle, how it transforms the participants. I think that idea that we can build a new society, but the people who are building it need to change themselves, and that on a, it's not going to happen on a mass scale with just individual conversations and and you know consciousness education. education mm. You know, and we should do that. We should definitely educate ourselves, read up about the history of the women's movement, understand interpersonal sexism, how it impacts on women's experience, but. Yeah, ultimately, actually, to transform participants on a mass scale, the millions of people, the the whole question about struggle, uh, yeah, um, being that educator, I think, is mm. is key to Marxist politics. The way of the revolution. And when we look around today, and maybe we'll just finish on 
some comments on this. Mm. Um, when we look at some of the challenges, I guess, we face as socialists who are fighting for women's liberation and fighting against sexism, I mean, I think it's come a long way, people's rejection of mainstream feminism or liberal feminism, but it's still there. I mean, there are still going to be Labor MPs up and down this country on March the 8th having International Women's Day luncheons, luncheons, breakfasts, whatever, speeches about how important it is for women to be equal, you know, CEOs, more women CEOs, and people say, well, I mean, it would be, be- it would be good, wouldn't it, if there were more women in parliament and more women as uh, running corporations and all of that kind of <laughs> stuff. So that's that's all still there that people think um, mm. those things will make a difference. Total rubbish. And then we've also got when we say, oh, we don't want all of that crap. We want class struggle. People going, oh yeah, where's where's that then? <laughs> because mm. the trade union movement is also like we said, um, will fight sometimes, uh, and around the equal pay issue has shown that it can fight uh, to a degree, but can't back that up. And under the leadership of two women, right at the moment, um, the Australian. Uh, Council of Trade Unions is not showing any m- more fight than when it was under the leadership of men, which is um, just the unfortunate reality. The challenge of uh, rebuilding the union movement, and then we're also trying to build a group of revolutionary socialists mm-hmm. who don't accept the confides of the current system. And so I think you know rebuilding an anti-capitalist, a uh, defiantly anti-capitalist movement is what we need to do if you are somebody who's listening and you think, yes, fucking hell, I want to challenge all the sexism that I see in my life and all the bullshit and all the crap that people offer me instead of actual change, which is just making excuses um, for the system. So what would you recommend to people <laughs> who, who are listening um, and thinking, I hate sexism and I want to do something about it? Um and they see it around and maybe they even think that it's, you know, it's on the left as well and it's just everywhere yeah. and it's just, it's really a big challenge. Well, I mean, to start off with, everyone should be there on Thursday night if you're in Melbourne uh, to march as part of the International Women's Day protest, uh, 5.30 State Library, so everyone should be there. And I think beyond that, yeah, it's important that we rebuild the strength of the trade union movement, understanding that the weakness of the trade union movement, the neoliberal offensive, what that has meant for working class women, that it's meant cuts to our welfare, cuts to, you know, job security. It's meant, you know, more burden on working class women, the family. Like we actually have an interest in rebuilding that strength uh, from the bottom up. But yeah, definitely we need to build a a left and a left that's committed to women's liberation, uh, that's committed to challenging sexism wherever we see it. And that's uh, sees that the fight for women's liberation is a fight uh, against the whole system. Mm. We have to confront capitalism. So every single struggle that is pushing in that direction, whether it's for refugee rights or against the far right, for workers' rights, you name it, that's all part of weakening the system that thrives on our oppression. Uh, so, mm. yeah, definitely building up the ranks of socialist uh, activists, women and men is critical. Yeah, and I think also... Um, questioning the mainstream um, feminist discourse around um, this being an issue that's just about uh, representations of women in 
the mass media mm. or just the sexist ideas in the heads of the men in our lives. You know, this is obviously something that is um, a source of exploitation in the system um, that's profitable for the system and that we need to actually confront it as such. And we sure we do that through our unions and through organisations like ours and by getting out on the streets, but actually um, challenging the real basis from where these ideas come from, because otherwise we're just, we're going to get nowhere. We blame each other um, and it just leads to this um, frustration that I think a lot of people feel and a hopelessness that it doesn't have to, you know, it can really um, go well beyond that with a bit of um, socialist politics and struggle. Yeah. And I hope one of the things that people get from listening to this podcast is uh, picking up on the common threads that run through whatever it is that we're talking about, whatever particular angle that we're coming at in investigation of the system, what's so fucked up about it and the potential that we have to change it um, means that, you know, when we're fighting uh, around the question of the climate, you know, like the, the destruction of the planet and who's to blame for that and what are we going to do about it, that actually the struggle for climate um, justice is also a struggle for women's liberation. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle for LGBTI liberation. It's a struggle against racism. It's a struggle to get rid of borders. It's a struggle to get rid of um, exploitation in the workplace. All of those things um, are bound together. And I think there's a strength in that that cuts against some of the hopelessness that people can feel about sexism or the sexism they've experienced in their lives or you're, you might be experiencing right now wherever you are listening to this that you're really annoyed about that there is um, a way of turning it upside down and that we have the power to do that and that class politics shows us and revolutionary socialist politics shows us the power we have to do that and keep watching those videos on YouTube of the global struggles and looking at those pictures of those amazingly inspiring and courageous women fighters all around the world and um, we will do our bit here um, to show solidarity with those struggles and have struggles of our own and get some inspiring photos of (laughs) of ourselves one day. Yeah, we'll try. And I'll make mine selfies, so there you go. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, Louisa, for coming on and Liz. Thank you for having us. And hopefully we'll see you all um, on the streets for International Working Women's Day because you know what? We have a world to win. (laughs) 